Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. What movie defines romance for you? Is it the sweeping scope of Gone with the Wind or the friendship and humor of When Harry Met Sally? Do you weep for Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic or cheer when Patrick Swayze lifts Jennifer Grey at the end of Dirty Dancing? Maybe you're drawn to doom love stories like West Side Story or Casablanca, or maybe it's the strange, quirky, and profoundly moving eternal sunshine of the spotless mind that sums up love for you. Well, one of my favorite screen romances is the staid, restrained, and very British Brief Encounter, written by Noel Coward and directed by David Lean, and starring Trevor Howard and the brilliant Celia Johnson. This film, with its wall-to-wall voiceover, Rachmaninoff score, and flashback structure, is not only very unusual, but also demonstrates the craftsmanship and artistry that will make David Lean one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. So if you haven't seen this movie, and my guess is that many of you haven't, it's time to go on a romantic journey of your own to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream every movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the Cinephiles on Patreon, we've started something new. Each month, we will ask one film question. This month's question was, what's your favorite movie gunfight and why? And devote a Cinephile short to discussing your answers and, of course, giving our own thoughts on the topic. So that's a Cinephile short on gunfights right now on patreon.com slash the Cinephiles and David Lean's Brief Encounter this Friday on the Cinephiles. Please. What is it? Next Thursday, the same time. No, I couldn't possibly. Please. I ask you most humbly. You'll miss your train. All right. Run. Goodbye. I'll be there. Thank you, my dear. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, and host, um, and uh, owner and CEO of The Outlaw Nation. And I'm excited, to, uh, cautiously excited to talk about this movie with Steve Morris. This is a movie that Steve Morris recommended to me. He wanted to put it on the Cinephiles, and I know it comes with a lot of uh, accolades and awards. Um, so I'm looking forward to having this discussion. Get the sense that you didn't love it. <laughs> love is not the word I would use, but... I um, want to enjoy the movie through your eyes as we talk about it. it, it it's funny because we're watching it. Karen predicted that John's not going to like this movie. <laughs> uh, well, in the movie we're talking about, this came up in a really interesting way, which is that all of you who listen to the cinephiles have probably noticed that, man, we took a serious journey into the 80s yeah. over the last uh, month or so. And it's it actually isn't over. There's, there's more that are in the can. I'm not sure exactly what order they're going to come out in, mm-hmm. but... I, it wasn't on purpose. It wasn't intentional. Some of it came up because there was a guest that we really wanted. The, some of it came up because we actually talked about it in the cinephiles and said, let's do it. Some of it came up because there was uh, 
uh, Brian Dennehy had passed away, and so that led us to do Silverado. But I said, you know what, we really need to get out of the 80s. And we've talked about for a long time the idea of every once in a while, most of the movies that we do, both of us have seen. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, there's a movie that only one of us has seen, and that's always really interesting. And so I said, well, why don't we do something a little bit more obscure, something we know the other one hasn't seen? And this was my pick, which was 1945, Brief Encounter, directed by David Lean, written by Noel Coward. Um, this film is regularly ranked in the top 10 British films of all time. At one point, it reached the number two British film of all time and frequently ranked in the top romantic films ever made. Uh, it's a movie that I love. Um, and I might as well say how I first came to this film and then, cause I know how you came to it, <laughs> yeah. how I came to the film was, you know, it was in that, as we said, that era for me was the early nineties of the first burgeoning cinephile thing where I started tracking down movies of directors I loved. Lawrence of Arabia was already you know, one of my favorites, if not my favorite movie of all time. And I love Bridge on the River Kwai and Dr. Zhivago and, and even Passage to India. And I went. Let's find out some more David Lean movies. And I heard about this Brief Encounter movie. And it was right when Karen and I had started dating. We started dating in 1991. And so we watched this one together in our par- on VHS in our apartment in Lafayette. And both of us absolutely loved it. And we watched it multiple times in that era. And it was one of those movies that we showed to other people because we just were so moved by it. Um, and I hadn't seen it probably in 10 years when we sat yeah. down to watch it a couple of days ago and it still had the same kind of wallop and effect on me that it has had in the wow. past. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Well, and actually it's really different because when I watched it the first few times I was in young love right. and when I watch it now I've been married for almost 23 years, Yeah, you know, and the situation is very, very different. So John, how did you come to this film? Now it's you and Karen having separate internal dialogues about your own meetings, clandestine meetings possibly on the side. Um, uh, uh, I saw this one yesterday. Um, I ended up uh, getting the Criterion Channel app, uh, put it on the Roku, got on the trial for 14 days. It was one of the choices there. It's a quick, breezy 85-minute movie. It's not that long, uh, which is really unusual for a David Lean film. Uh, and watched it yesterday, and uh, it took uh, it took me a couple of breaks to finish it out. I'll be honest with you, I I found it to be an interestingly um, dated movie for me. And I love black and white movies. I'll go back and watch black and white movies like nobody's business. But there's something about this one that I found a little difficult to connect to. Uh, I don't know if it was the elevated dialogue, the elevated accents. I don't know if it was that time and place where it was set. Uh, but, uh, I did find little things to enjoy though. So I will say that about the movie, the characters and, and, uh, what happens. And it is a snapshot of a time in our history and in British history for sure, uh, that is long gone. Uh, so it's, it's kind of was, uh, enjoyable to visit that kind of time or that era. You're, you're, I feel you really stretching to be nice here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I want to respect the fact that it's a movie that both you and Karen enjoy and love. And, and I tried to, I tried to like it. Uh, You know, I even started watching it again this morning for like a half an hour, 45 minutes. I'm like, what, am I missing something? Was it the end of a long day? Was it, am I, am I just not hyped? And I still was like, no, this is one that it feels distant. It feels like I can't connect to the characters and everyone is speaking up here and speaking of this way and you know oh no i would never and it's just like i i didn't find the connection as strongly um as uh, i have in films in the past that are british and black and white 
uh, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, get their hooks in me. Um, but it was a interesting, but it was a, what I would say this, it was a beautifully tragic story, uh, which I thought didn't cop out and didn't cheat the ending, which was great. That was great. Like you thought, oh, they'll find a way, they'll find a way. But in the end, they don't. And because they don't, that makes the film all the more powerful uh, and tragic. Did you watch it? Did you watch it with Lindley? No, she's still in San Diego. She comes Uh. back today. I don't know if she would enjoy it too, even though she's a big uh, Anglophile. I don't know if this is her cup of tea, but maybe I'll, uh, I'll sit down with her for like half an hour to see if she likes it or not. It's, certainly it, it, it's, it's obviously, I don't, I, I certainly don't want to force you to rewatch a movie that you didn't like and even tried a second time once. That doesn't <laughs> seem like a good friend, but I'd be curious to hear what she thought of it. Well, to um, be fair, it wasn't unpleasurable to w- try to watch it a second. It's not an unpleasurable movie in any way, shape or form. I just feel that it's distant. That's all for me. Um, so this is a, it, it's an interesting collaboration between Noel Coward and David Lean. It's based on a Noel Coward one act called Still Life. And of course, Noel Coward, for those of you who don't know, he was the biggest British playwright of his age. Uh, he started off as an actor. He was born in the late 1800s and, and decided that he wasn't getting good parts as an actor. So he said, I'm going to write myself some good parts. He's, yeah. He started to become a hit playwright in the 20s and acted in all his plays. Still Life was like a 40-minute one act about these two people. It only took place in the refreshment room at the train station. It had none of the other characters. It wasn't in flashback structure. And Noel Coward played uh, the Alec character. And, in, and that was in 1935. And a whole bunch of people are pushing him at this point to put his plays into movies. And he was very resistant. And in the 40s, they even start pushing him to direct. Why, well, if you, if you won't let us make a movie, why don't you come and be the director? You've directed a lot of theater and you can, you can make the movie. And he's like, I don't know anything about this cameras and lighting and sound and all that stuff. He doesn't know how to do it. And that's how David Lean came along. So David Lean was born a Quaker. And when he was born, movies were considered to be sins. So he never was allowed to see them. So what did he do? He he snuck out of school regularly to go see movies. Uh, his father was an accountant and wanted him to follow in the family tradition. Um, and he did. And he became an accountant. He says possibly the worst accountant in history. <laughs> and it didn't work very well. And he finally gets into the film industry just before the tradition to sound pictures. Mm. And he did everything. He worked on wardrobe. He worked on uh uh, production design. He worked as an assistant to everybody. It was a, he did everything he could think of. He did the slate. He did camera assistant. Right. And but the biggest thing he did was he started in the editing department. And because he was technically minded, when the sound transition started happening and people had to figure out how to sync sound, he was one of the few people who could do it, who understood wow. the technology. And it, what's so funny about this is a similar thing happened right when I was getting out of film school because that's when we were making the transition from editing film with a, cutting it and actually splicing the physical film to right. digital editing. And so the crew that came out of my generation in the mid to late nineties are the first young people who really knew the computer technology. Mm. And so all the old editors hired young assistants who could do the computer stuff. And that's how a lot of people I know became uh, editors. Um, 
Anyway, he a bunch of people. He started to work as an assistant director, particularly on a bunch of Shaw movies like Pygmalion and uh, Major Barbara, mm-hmm. and did a lot of. A lot of people thought that he really directed big parts of Major Barbara. Um, and Robert, start, Robert Shaw, so you mean right, or but George Bernard Shaw? Sorry, George, George Bernard, Bernard Shaw. Shaw. Right, just for those who maybe haven't read his stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, by the way, I was thinking recently about My Fair Lady. I don't know if oh, yeah. you like that movie, Henry Higgins. Yes, yeah. Um, just, a, just a thought. Oh, speaking of, speaking okay. of Shaw, <laughs> speaking of Shaw, yeah, um, we haven't done a musical in a while, so true, very um, true. Um, and uh, uh, they said, well, you know what we want? We have a bunch of low budget pictures. Why don't you direct one of these? And David Lean said no. And it's so interesting thinking of the studio going. David Lean is the perfect person to re- direct our low-budget B-movies. <laughs> um, but he says no, and it's this moment all comes together when he is emerging as someone they want to start as a young director, and Coward is looking for someone to come along who understands the technical side of filmmaking. Mm. And so he, go, you know, they approach David Lean and say, would you be willing to help out? And David Lean says, I'll do it on one condition. I want co-directing credit um, with Coward. And Coward says, you know, all right. Yeah. Um, let's let's do it. And Props to uh, David Lean. Props to David Lean for having the stones to be like, no, I'm going to do this and I'll do it under this condition. Respect, man. Yeah. So the first, uh, the first one he did, uh, so they do a movie called In Which We Serve. And this is very much a World War II uh, military pro-British kind of movie. Um, and... Coward is really a coward accident as well. And slowly but surely he starts to relinquish control and realizing really tr- trust this guy. Yeah. Um, next they make uh, uh, this happy breed. Um, they're both really good movies, by the way. And then in 1945, they go, well, we're going to do what is arguably one of coward's best plays, which is blind spirit, which is a really, really funny comedy. And coward is out of, the country for a fair amount of the shooting. So really this is David Lean directing it. Yeah. And he comes back and basically says, you've ruined my greatest piece of writing. Wow. He hated the blithe spirit that David Lean made. Wow. Um, and, and, but then, I mean, he ripped him to pieces and it sounds like an old coward was a guy that you really didn't want to get on the wrong side of. Yep. He was pretty articulate. And, uh, but then after that, he says, you know what? You are the most resilient young man I've ever met. Because David Lean took the abuse yeah. and just shrugged it off. And he says, okay, we'll do one more movie together. And that's how Brief Encounter comes about. Mm. And again, Coward left the country. So he really wasn't there. David Lean really was in charge of this. The one thing that did happen was they continually needed new script stuff. So they'd send Noel Coward a telegram and they'd say, we need 30 seconds here. And Noel Coward would write back, here's 30 seconds. And if you want it to be 24 seconds, you can take out this phrase. And if you want it to be 38 seconds, you can add this phrase in. Wow. That's how on the ball Noel Coward was about Very this. considerate. Very yeah. considerate, yeah. Um, before we get into the movie, there's mm-hmm. one thing I have to say. This is a really weird movie. It breaks, <laughs> it breaks one of the cardinal laws of screenwriting and filmmaking, which is, well, it's not wall-to-wall voiceover. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of voiceover. It is. It I is think a, that's what it took me out of it, Steve. I was just like, uh, uh, you're just telling me a story. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's kind of the make or break for the film. Yeah. If you like listening to Celia Johnson's voice mm-hmm. and enjoy the language and enjoy sort of the internal thought process of this character, you're going to be in. And if this puts you off, you're going to be out. 
but it's an internal thought process that she never relays to her husband, except in that one ending moment, which takes him realizing that she was drifting off, not in a way like to go to sleep, but drifting off out of the marriage possibly, and him thanking her for coming back. But through the entire thing is her confession is essentially to the audience in the guise of confessing what's what was what happened uh, within herself and not to him. So it's interesting. Um, I again, I get the sense that that bugs you. Well, we'll get to it as we talk about. Yeah, it. we'll get. To uh, it. You know, yeah. So, so what? One thing I want to say is, you know, like one of the things I always struggle with doing these podcasts is how much detail do I want to give. And how much do you guys want to listen to my voice telling this story? And this is going to be a difficult one because I do love the language. But listening to me or even playing tons and tons of the narration is not going to be made for an entertaining podcast. So yeah. it'll be a little bit of a struggle for me to figure it out. Um, <laughs> but the movie opens uh, with just a spectacular shot of a train blasting through a station. Apparently, that train is going 100 miles an hour. It was really important to David Lean that it's a steam train, and it looks gorgeous. Yeah. And let's be real clear. David Lean loves trains. Mm-hmm. In, in his greatest films, all of them have beautiful, beautiful train sequences. Lawrence blowing up the train, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai blowing up the bridge, mm-hmm. and beautiful train sequences in Zhivago. And I yep. think there's trains in Passage to India as well. Okay. I think. Um, I don't remember that movie as well. Yeah, I haven't seen it. So yeah, um, the the sound of the train going through the station is just like a scream, mm-hmm. and that screech fades perfectly into Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. Two. Which is the music for the entire film, and. It's one of my absolute favorite pieces of classical music. I learned about it because of this movie. It is on when I sit down and write, I can't write while listening to music with lyrics because it distracts me. And Rachmaninoff is in the top five or six pieces of music that I play. The train goes through and there's the kind of that Doppler effect into a, you know, sound cue into real sound. And we see the station manager uh, check his, watch and this is a character we're gonna see a lot of he uh this by the way was shot at camforth railway station in lancashire and one of the things about this it's far enough out of town this middle of world war ii it's far enough far enough from the big cities that they didn't have to obey the blackout laws Mm. so they could shoot with lights at night which you couldn't in london because the you know everything was blacked out because of the blitz yeah and this guy goes inside to talk to the woman behind the counter this is stanley holloway uh, who plays Albert, the station manager, and he's talking to uh, Myrtle, which is Joyce Carey, the uh, the person who runs the refreshment stand. Mm-hmm. Um, Stanley Holloway, probably the biggest star in this movie. Wow. He was a well-known character actor, had been in tons of films and all sorts of stuff, very beloved, as opposed to Celia Johnson, who had been in a couple of movies, and mm-hmm. Trevor Howard, where this is his first lead. Right. And what's going to happen with them is there's going to be a whole bunch of chat flirting between these two characters it's very kind of mid-lower class british humor and i'm going to ignore almost all of it (laughs) yeah it's a really weird thing because it's the secondary it's the b plot and it's sort of a love story between these two characters and it acts in contrast to what we're going to see between our main characters right well it's the love story that that 
can go on yep versus the love story that can't right but in terms of like going over what their dialogue is and what they're talking about and what their the evolution of their romance i don't think it's i don't think it's important to our discussion today yeah, sure. i'll put it that way i agree and as uh, we hear them chatting along, the camera pans off of them, and we see this couple sitting at a table drinking tea, and that is Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. Yeah. And we can see that something's going on. Yeah, can we take a moment? I think this is a really brilliant move by David Lean. Like, once again, I may not have liked the movie overall or have it affect me, but you you can still speak about it in its technical approach. And I think that's... This is brilliant because he fools you with the camera because they have been sitting there the whole time while this banter has been going on, right? That's the assumption when we finally see them. And then the camera just kind of quietly moves to that corner of the restaurant to hear them speaking back and forth. And I think that's so nice the way he does that because he unsettles you. And look, the, the train coming through the scream, that is like symbolic, like a mother, right? Oh, yeah. It's a speeding train is their relationship. Um, how she feels wanting to leave that relationship is a speeding train. The fact that that speeding train comes back at the end where she almost kills herself, that's a fact. You know, all of there's so much that you you will appreciate about that speeding train later. But, of course, a master director understands why they're putting something in the film because they know people will appreciate it when they think about it later. And I think it's, it's a great way to start. It unsettles you. Then you have this weird banter between uh, – that. Oh, it's almost Mamet-esque, the banter between yeah. uh, the, the coffee shop lady and uh, – or the freshman stand lady and, uh, and the station uh, manager back and forth. And then we moved quietly – to these two. These are the two characters we're supposed to take seriously. The other two characters are kind of a little cartoonish but or caricaturish at times, but we move over to them and they're having a very, um, what you can sense is almost a very melancholy exchange uh, between them. You know? well, and this goes to something we talked about over and over again, which is all movies are mysteries. Yep. And in this, in this moment, the cameras just move. This is an unmotivated camera move. There's nothing on the screen that's telling us to move. It's you're very aware of it. It goes and looks right. at these people who aren't talking. You yeah. can feel there's some heaviness going on, but you don't know what it is. And just as you're kind of thinking about that, in walks this woman who recognizes Laura, the Celia Johnson character, and right. just sits down as you do and says, "Oh, good to see you." And she is a perfect chatter. My dear, I've been shopping till I'm dropping my feet and nearly off my throat's parched. I thought of having tea at Spindles, but I was terrified of losing the train. Oh, dear. She's one of those people who has a stream of words yeah. coming out of her mouth and the look of disappointment and emotion that happens on our two characters when this woman sits down right. and she asks, you know, they make some introductions and she asks, Oh, could you get me a cup of coffee to, uh, to Trevor Howard? You know, I'm just so tired. And he goes, okay. And he gets up and, you know, which is all perfectly normal behavior. Yeah. I mean, I find her irritating, <laughs> which is of course on purpose, but, but right. there's nothing abnormal going on. And, and she says, my dear, what a nice looking man who on earth is he really? You're quite a dark horse. It'll telephone Fred in the morning and make mischief. <laughs> now she does. She just thinks she's making a joke. Right. And of course, we don't know because we just started this movie what the heck is going on. Right. But as you watch the way the movie's structured, which we don't know yet, but we'll find out, is it's a very strange flashback structure. Yeah. Is that what we'll find out is this is the man that she's fallen in love with and that she was very close to having an affair with mm -hmm. or does have an affair, depending on how you define your terms. So her saying, I shall telephone Fred in the morning and make mischief is actually attacking directly at her guilt. 
Mm-hmm. And he comes back and there's talk about, you know, the sugar and all oh, the sugars in the spoon. And it's just totally ordinary talk. Yeah. So the dialogue is on one level where it's completely not important. Right. But emotionally, you feel like something really is important. Yeah. Just on her face and his face, you know that something bigger is happening here that this woman has interrupted. Yeah. And then we hear the bell and the announcement for his train. And one of the things that's really interesting, but it sort of hit me harder this time, is there's mm-hmm. the contrast between the romantic world and the real world. Mm-hmm. And the bells of the train and the schedule of the train is almost always the time to go back to the real world. Oh, uh, yeah. Good call. You know? Yeah. And, 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 and the thing about a train schedule is a train schedule is locked in. Mm-hmm. You cannot train, no matter how much you want to do something else, the train leaves when the train leaves, Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things in this movie is the struggle between the romantic notion of your life and what has to be right, what you have to do. Well, it's a dream, right? The, the train whistles are essentially an alarm waking you up from a dream mm-hmm. uh, every single time. That's exactly right. And mm-hmm. we realize it's his train and there is a look between them that are just profound although you don't know what's going on and i love this moment is he goes okay i guess i have to go and then he in a shot on her he puts his hand on her shoulder Mm -hmm. and her face she has an amazing face by the way well she won the best actress oscar for this so yeah uh i don't think she won Oh, she was nominated? nominated. She didn't win. Uh, oh, my bad. Won. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I think yeah. it's um. This is the best year of our lives year. Oh, and I okay. think it's uh. What's her name? I forget. Right. Um. Anyway. Uh. And, and this is. I mean, it's interesting that David Lean started as an editor, and this is just what's so interesting about this film. I've seen the other Noel Coward ones before mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. This is where you see the master filmmaker come out. This is where that person who really understands where to put the camera and putting the camera right there on her face and seeing his hand come in. We know, even though we know nothing about what's going on, that sums up. Yeah. And he leaves and she watches him go. And again, lean puts the camera in the perfect place. It's her point of view of the door as he exits. And just as she, he exits, this woman sits into frame and starts chatting. Talking of missing trades reminds me of that awful bridge at Broadham Junction. You've got to go traipsing all up one side, along the top, and down the other. And she goes on and on. <laughs> and actually, if you want to learn how to write good British middle-class gossipy dialogue, it's fantastic. Yeah. But none of it is important. Right. Be- because what's important is happening under the surface. And, and then we hear another bell for another train and our friend asks, oh is that our train it's like no that's the express and she says oh of course that doesn't stop does it and she goes off to get some chocolates so she goes to the counter and we see the express train go by in the windows and we hear the sound and when she turns around laura is gone the seat is empty yeah, yeah. um And then laura comes back in and again it's a perfectly framed shot the shots in a wide shot we see in focus, there's like chairs in the foreground, and the focus point is not at the door. So when Laura comes back into the room, she's just the tiniest bit out of focus. Yeah. Um, which, again, is a great choice. And she looks shook. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going on. We don't know why she's upset. She says she feels sick. They get her some brandy. Um, and then it's time for their train. And she, they get into the train. 
And she sits down, still not looking good. I really am very worried about you, dear. You look terribly peaky. I'm all right, really, I am. And this is as you do. Yeah. You always go, no, no, I'm okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's what we all do all the time. Mm-hmm. How many times have you said, no, I'm fine. It's fine. Yeah. When yeah. you weren't, when you weren't fine. Because you don't want to be a bother. Yeah. Uh, and you want to be able to handle whatever it is happening. And you certainly don't want to be irritated by other people trying to solve what's going on with you because you're inside your own body. And yeah. you know what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, and it's just private, you yeah, know? Yeah, private. Yeah, that too. That's very much so, yes. And then she talks about the guy. Well, he certainly was very good looking. Who? Well, your friend, Dr. Whatever his name was. Yes, he's a nice creature. Have you known him long? No, not very long. I hardly know him at all, really. <laughs> and that line is a discovery for her. Yeah. You know, that this person that obviously means so much... She's only known, Karen, I counted it. She's known him, met him, she knows him seven weeks. That's how long this movie takes place. And of that time, the first two times is like for a minute um, each week. And then it's like, you know, maybe she spent two two days with him, two or three days with him. Right. Very little time. She doesn't know him at all. Yeah, and that's the thing, Stephen. This is the time when movies, like people fall in love on the first sight in a lot of movies at the time in the 40s. 50s too is like two or three dates and you're married you know the, the the this happens a lot in movies from that time so the idea with us looking back from 2020 that they only knew each other for four or seven weeks for us that seems way too soon to be saying the l word um but maybe back then it wasn't right remember like you said the idea of the war i don't think it's set during world war ii but it feels like it's just right before world war ii yeah it's so set it's, right before yeah right before so there's this feeling of like you know, there's this sense of impending doom in the air, maybe. And uh, so there's this run, desire to connect, to connect, to find something. Uh, and so, although it may seem short, um, it certainly feels authentic to both of them. I think the choice is made in 45. So, you know, mm. England's been through a lot of war. And the yeah. choice, I think it's set in 37. Okay. The choice okay. to set it pre-war is really important. And one of the things of this movie, you know, what's happening during the war is yeah. that you have soldiers who are out in, you know, away from home and they might be having dalliances with people that are not their spouses. And you have wives who are on the home front mm-hmm. and they might be having these things. So even though we're not at the war, we're actually dealing with, because one of the things this movie does is that it, it is a hundred percent a love at first sight movie. That is what it yes. is. Yeah. But it do- what it does is it says, you know, there can be two worlds that we live in. And it doesn't vilify either of them. Yeah, that's a strong point you make, Steve. The film director and the movie itself does not judge either of them for what they do. Uh, absolutely. Which allows you to turn off the judgment a little bit. Uh, you can still judge it, obviously, if you feel like it. But the movie doesn't encourage your judgment. And I think that's a positive about the film, for sure. Yeah, it, 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 it's it, the movie steps back and mm-hmm. says it, it certainly doesn't condemn anyone. Right. Um, so uh, Celia Johnson was Lean's only choice for this part. He decided that this is it. She's not a big star. She'd acted in one of the one of the previous uh, movies with Noel Coward. He said the thing about her that was so great was her power of concentration. Hmm. He said she could make you cry reading the yellow pages. Wow. Wow. And what she said was she wrote in a, a letter of that. She, she loved the part. It's her favorite part she ever had uh, in her life, not surprisingly. And that what she liked when she got offered the part, she's like, well, 
first she narrates the whole movie so she said if so this is what she said so if they don't have my beautiful face to look at they have my mellifluous voice to listen to <laughs> that word does not get used enough mellifluous good word word <laughs> good word john i can't tell you how excited i am about the cinephiles new sponsor an absolutely incredible game marvel strike force now anyone who's listened to the show knows that i've been reading comic books since i was five years old and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true you could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite marvel characters i mean everyone is there the punisher vision black panther cap or even my favorite marvel character of all time daredevil your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And now we get what, which I talked about at the very beginning, is the camera starts to push in on her, and we start to hear her voiceover. I wish I could trust you. I wish you were a wise, kind friend. Instead of a gossiping acquaintance I've known casually for years and never particularly cared for. I'm not going to name any names. But I have friends who I who are really acquaintances that I've known casually for years and never particularly cared for. You know? <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, I'm sure we all have those. We sure. all have those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and this moment, and I'm sure of, we're I'm sure we're in that category for other people as well. Of course. Yeah. Abs- yeah, yeah. I, I am certain of it. I even have guesses as who those people are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, because that's that's the reality. And what's mm-hmm. so what's what part of what this movie is about is that she has, in many ways, the most important thing ever to happen to her in her life yeah. is this experience. And she will never in her life get to talk to anyone about it. No. Right. Except the audience. Except the audience. And and again, the woman's still talking, blah, blah, blah. And we hear that the guy is moving and going down to africa and then we have a close-up of of, on her lips as she's talking and again i've been in this situation where someone just won't shut up and that's what we hear she says i wish you'd stop talking i wish you'd stop prying and trying to find things out and then she says i wish you were dead no i don't mean that that was silly and unkind (laughs) yeah and this is where we get to the point where this is why i can't connect to the film in this way it feels like a reader's digest and i'm just like i to me that's and oh look i'm not no coward fans are probably like you know ready to tear me apart by saying that but like that particular thing right because the voiceover comes out of nowhere it really comes out of nowhere before we've even been established that this is a person we should care about all of a sudden we're into this woman's world and into this woman's mind and the things she's saying and she is being unkind um 
but also telling us what she really thinks, what she really feels about this person. You know, I mean, wishing death seems very extreme just because she's a chatterbox, but she yanks herself back a little bit. She just says, oh, I just wish you stopped talking. But of course, what we find out later, and this was, man, maybe this is, and I was hoping this would happen. As I spoke with you about the movie, I would start to appreciate it better and more. And yeah, this is something uh, in this moment, when you go back and talk about it now or watch it again, the reason she says death is because she's in an extremely emotional state of mind in her mind, having lost this incredible love of her life and then having to be on a train with this person. So can you falter for sliding into an extreme reaction and wishing death on the chatty woman just for a second before yanking it back? And you really can't. Well, we're going to do something that we always do on the cinephiles, which is we spoil everything. Yes, true. And, and while this isn't exactly a movie with a big twist, like like Fight Club or something, mm-hmm. this is a movie where we see one of the amazing constructs of the film is that the scene that we saw when they were yeah. when, when we entered the movie and this woman came and sat down with them mm-hmm. is the scene we're going to see at the end of the movie. Yep. And we're going to work our way back to it. And the moment at which the express train went by and she disappeared for a moment and then comes back in feeling faint. She was inches away, millimeters away from killing herself. Yeah. You know, so the, I wish you were dead. I mean, this is 10 minutes after she almost killed herself. Exactly. You know? And so we can have a reaction like, Oh my God, like what's going on with this person. But the, the react as we sort of fill in the blanks of what this is, it's it's a big deal, and then and and it's and it's what's funny too. One other thing I should say: one of the basic rules of screenwriting is show don't tell. We've talked about it over and over again on the cinephiles. We definitely talked about the fact that people using narration and voiceover to explain the feelings of their characters is absolutely amateurish screenwriting. You should never do it. It's wrong that we should be seeing what they're feeling. And if you just have someone going, I am really upset right now. I hated that person when they, you'd be like, I, I as a teacher would go, no, you can't do that. Cut it all. It's terrible. And this movie is all of that. That's all it is. And somehow, because for me, because of Noel Coward's amazing writing and because of what, lean is doing with the camera and because of celia johnson man and her face i'm in and it works for me and it might not work for everybody this can't last this misery can't last nothing lasts really neither happiness nor despair not even life lasts very long there'll come a time in the future when i shan't mind about this anymore when i can look back and say quite peacefully and cheerfully how silly i was I want to talk about that thought first. Mm-hmm. I've had that. I've had that recently. Mm. You know, I, I don't know, but I, I do mostly feel better in the morning. Yeah. I do usually feel better after I exercise, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and so there are so many times where I'm like, I know I feel this way, this way. It will not last. Mm. I know I will feel better at some point right. and try to hold hope in that moment, you know, uh, you mean like you get um, uh, dark thoughts or depression or sad thoughts or whatever? Is yeah, that what or, or angry or, yeah. or frustrated or sure. feeling. Yeah, all of that. Stuff. I mean, all the, we all do. We all do. Right. You know, right. at right. one or time or another. And there are times where I'm just like, okay, you feel this way. It's yeah. It will not. I, I know from experience it so far has never lasted. Right. I, I will regain. I, I For me, I call it regaining my equilibrium. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a pretty good equilibrium and i usually get back to it pretty quick yeah yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I, like, you know, I don't want to get to it, but we know, I've mentioned many times the 2016, the five months of severe depression. Every morning I felt uh, suicidal for the first three to four hours every morning. But every morning I'd have to power through meditation or music or whatever to distract me because I knew by nine or 10 o'clock uh, I'd find the equilibrium. I'd be okay for the rest of the day. But those first four to five hours every morning were torture, absolute torture. But you just keep repeating the mantra to yourself. If I can just get to yep. here, I think I'll be okay for the day. You know what I'm saying? So I, and now the, the, it rarely happens now, thank God. But I remember those days and I'll, I'll never, ever forget them. So I absolutely think that a lot of us have that where we just go, let me just get through this. And once I get through this, I know uh, it'll calm itself down and I'll be all right. You know? Well, and, and this is the thing about the voiceover, which is that, yes, it's wrong in terms of screenwriting sure. and craftsmanship, but you could, I don't think you could get this particular thought pattern any other way. Right, the, because you don't set it up that you can. There is no friend she can talk to to release this exposition. So you have to have her talk to the audience. Yeah. Well, and, and, and anytime we're talking, even if you have care, anytime we're talking to someone else, we have beat work and motivation and what does sure. care want and all that stuff and their relationship with the other person. This is all stripped away. This is yeah. just the stream of consciousness in her mind. And, and, and the most interesting thing in this thing is, is what she says next, mm -hmm. because she's just said, it's going to pass. And someday I'm going to look back and say I was silly. And then she goes, No, no, I don't want that time to come ever. I want to remember every minute. Always. Always to the end of my days. She's, it's a very self-aware moment in a film from the 1940s, man. When you talk about this idea of a mental health being a recent thing and it's psychotherapy in the 70s and 80s where psychiatry became a big deal, this is a 1945 film where a woman is having this very self-aware dialogue about what she's experiencing emotionally. And it's very poignant when she says, I don't want the feeling to go away. You know, it's eternal sunshine on the spotless mind. Yeah. It's like, I want to have the memory without the pain. Yeah. That's what I want. I don't ever want it to be something I laugh about or whatever, but I never want to forget the power of that love that I had, even though I may not ever have it again. I don't want to forget the power. I just want to remove the pain, you know? Well, and this is, not even in the 1940s and any time mm. this is a female-led movie it's not just a female-led movie it is her movie it is her story absolutely 100 percent. and yep. she is a middle-class mm. unimportant wife yeah there's not like like it is just going and what the movie does is goes no this woman's life is important right you know her feelings are as big and romantic and profound yeah. as as gone with the wind as any big romantic movie you want to name yeah. and yet it's all happening in this very very small way <laughs> one other thing i want to point out is as this whole inner monologue is happening the camera is pushing in and the light around her is fading out so you just see her face yeah yeah there are several citizen kane influences on this film yeah, that you are can really sense clear that, right yeah, yeah you can sense that can't you yeah i think lean saw that and went oh okay <laughs> Um, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. Yeah. <laughs> they, they get off the train and she says, no, no, I'm fine. I'm going to walk home. And she uh, gets to the house and you could see the hat in the foreground. So, you know, there's a husband and you see her try to sneak up the stairs. Like, I don't want to deal with him. Right. And then there's the husband and there's something going on with the kids. And, and from this deep, heavy, emotional place, she has to put on the face. Yeah. And man, as a parent now, that's one of the big reasons is now I've been married a long time mm -hmm. and I'm a parent 
and the number of times I've had to put on the face in one way or another <laughs> and put my crap aside to deal with whatever you have to deal with, man. Yeah. And again, what they're dealing with, just life stuff. It's birthdays. And what are we going to do? And we meet mm. her husband, Fred, who's played by Cyril Raymond. I think his character is amazing in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Um, and he just seems like a really nice guy. And they talk about parent stuff and spoiling mm -hmm. the kids. And there, there's some choice between whether they do one kid, what one kid wants or what the other kid wants. And finally, he says, which I love, We'll thrash them both soundly, lock them up in the attic, and go to the pictures by ourselves. <laughs> which is a great husband thing to say. Yeah. And what does she do? She bursts into tears. Yeah. And he is completely sympathetic. Oh, like, yeah. He's just like, oh, my God, are you okay? Like, what did I say? Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. It, damn, I'm, you know, I'm starting to enjoy the film now. It's, it's really fascinating <laughs> as we talk about it. You know, and I was hoping, like, once again, I was hoping this would happen. Um, because it's good to have. I had my own internal dialogue about the movie last night, but, you know, I can talk to Steve about it. So I don't have to have that kind of thing. Uh, and as we, as you know, she, this moment is really fascinating, too, because she is carrying so much weight into the moment. And Cyril, the character that uh, Cyril plays is Fred. Uh, Fred. So So Fred is... Not necessarily a he's not a bad guy, but you do sense from Fred that Fred is very much operating with within the constructs of male female dynamics in that time yep. in Britain, right? Um, and also, Steve, you mentioned this is a 1945 film. What was happening in World War II? Women were working, yep. women were doing that, women were coming to the forefront of this power. Uh, and so the dynamics were changing. So uh, this film becomes popular because maybe women are hearing themselves for the first time on screen, having actual feelings and experiences that they've seen, they've experienced themselves. How many women have had a mini tryst uh, or a mini moment or men? Well, I guess less men of, because it's a patriarchal society, men have done it with more abandon. But women at the time, I imagine, it was way more difficult to do so much more uh, uh, was involved here and the judgment and the shame of it was more powerful because society was not as understanding about it in reverse. So I think that's uh, an important thing that, that is happening here in this uh, film as well. Well, and even if you haven't had that tryst, you've thought about it. Mm, mm. Good point. Because yeah. part of what this movie is, is the contrast between the romantic fantasy and real life. Yeah. And in the end, it says the romantic fantasy is impossible, but it doesn't say that you shouldn't have it or it's not real or mm -hmm. if it's not profound. Yeah. And, and, and then she kind of explains what she why she's crying by giving him the least possible details, which is, oh, I had, you know, a fainting spell and this woman was trying to be nice to me and she, I just wanted to strangle her. And and then she says and this goes to something you said a little while ago. She says she just meant to be kind. Isn't it awful about people meaning to be kind? <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's Some of the right, Steve. I'm sure you experienced this, right? Some of the worst interactions you can have after a terrible event are people who are just trying to be kind. Yep. Uh, and that's not that they shouldn't try to be kind. Lord God, we of course need kindness in those moments, but sometimes it's it's difficult to receive it, and it almost becomes irritating as opposed to soothing. You know. Yeah. Well, it, it, what's so – I'm trying to think of how to say this. Mm. We go through rituals, and we use rituals to deal with things. Mm 
Yeah. And the reason we use rituals to deal with things is that there is rarely a way to deal with them in any other way. Hmm. And that, so if you're dealing with a tragedy or a death or a reversal, or you got fired or you, you know, some crappy thing happened. Yeah. People will come and they'll say the things that people say at those events. Yeah. And they'll say them because they're trying to be kind. And if you're a polite person, you take them as thank you for your kindness. Mm -hmm. And yet they don't usually penetrate, you know, they don't yeah. help. You know, when someone comes and says, I'm sorry for your loss or, oh, dude, that sucks. Right. Unless they can find a way to actually connect with you, to connect with the feeling, it doesn't really help. And, and, and that's that. Um, isn't it awful about people meaning to be kind? Mm. That is such a truth. That's just kind of thrown off in yeah. here. Yeah. And he says, well, you know, you got, you know, you should relax. Why don't you, you want to go to bed? She says, no, I can't, I couldn't sleep. And he says, well, then help me with the times crossword. Right. She says, you have a peculiar <laughs> ideas about relaxation. <laughs> but again, he's doing a move that I've done many times, which is I, this is the look over here. Right. Let right. me distract you with some right. other thing. Yep. And he sits at her feet. And uh, we're in an over the shoulder. A lot of this movie is from behind her where she's mm -hmm. sitting in this chair and we're looking at the husband. Yeah. Um, and he asked for help with this crossword puzzle. And the answer to the question is romance, romance. <laughs> which she comes up with. Right. Right. <laughs> um, romance. And she asks if music would throw him off his stride. And he says, no problem. He, she goes and puts on the radio. And what is the music she finds? Rachmaninoff's second concerto. Do you, what's the history of Rachmaninoff's second? What is it? What is the main emotion of that piece? I don't know if I have an answer to that. Okay. I do know that uh, he had become a very popular pianist. Uh, he was he he played as well. He so in addition yeah. to composing, he played, and this was his most popular piece to play. He didn't even yeah. like playing it that much at a certain time, and that uh, this movie completely revitalized this uh, piece wow. of music. Like it had wow. sort of fallen on a little bit of. Uh, disrepute by the 30s right. and 40s. Uh, but this, it not only did it, this is crazy to me, I didn't look, find it, but not only did it become a big hit again, but yeah. someone put lyrics to it and made it a popular song. <laughs> really? Which I listened to this piece of music, I'm like, how, how would you do this? <laughs> okay. Um, by the way, Noel Coward wrote full biographies of every one of his characters in his movies. So he wrote their their backstories, their hobbies, how they dress, how they spoke, where they went to school. And one of the things that he wrote is that, and he told David Lean, the music has to be Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. It has to be. Wow. Or it, it was like a deal breaker for him right. of making right. this movie. How interesting. Okay. And this I'm, is the hill I'm going to die on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And she's lost in thought and she looks uh, at her husband and then she looks down and then we do the same thing. The camera is going to push in on her. The light is going to fade out around her, just revealing her face. And she says, Fred, dear Fred, there's so much that I want to say to you. You're the only one in the world with enough wisdom and gentleness to understand. If only it were somebody else's story and not mine. As it is, you're the only one in the world that I can never tell. It's a lot about this. And and again, Karen and I have had this. I mean, I'm not saying we've had the, the affair. Right. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure about Karen, but but <laughs> I, I, I'm not but I'm not saying that. 
But I've definitely had moments, and I know she has too, where there was a thing going on. And the main yeah. person I wanted to talk about it was my wife because right. that's who I talk about stuff with. Right. She's your she's, Yeah. If you have a good, strong relationship, they, they, your partner becomes your best friend. And, you know, it's there great. Were, yeah, but there was but, something I couldn't talk to her about. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, because um, that, that wasn't possible. There's a great line in a Prince song. It's called If I Was Your Girlfriend is the name of the song. Mm. He says, would you, he says something like, would you let me talk to you even if it was about somebody else that wasn't you? And I was just like, wow, that's the ultimate in love or the ultimate in friendship and connection that you can say. And some couples have this where they can say, I was really turned on by that woman or man. Um, and uh, what was I working through, honey? You know, and that's a very advanced uh, emotionally advanced couple. So, yeah. I mean, Karen and I will talk about, man, that person's really hot or right. even talk about people we're attracted to. We'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. But that's not what this is. This is, I <laughs> right. fell in love in a way I don't love you. Um, right. But she also call, says that Fred's the only person with wisdom enough and gentleness enough to understand. Yeah. Like, Fred's a good guy. Yeah, seems like Fred. And that's what I like about the movie too, Steve, is they don't cop out by making Fred a villainous person. Yeah. So she's doomed to a loveless marriage. It's that he's, he may be a bit uh, distant, uh, well, not aloof maybe, or doesn't fulfill all her needs. Um, but he's not a bad guy. Fred, yeah. you know what? You know what Fred is? Fred's Fred. He's yeah, Fred. Fred's Fred. He's Fred. He's he's totally he's funny. He's nice. He's attentive. He is what he is. <laughs> he's comfortable in who he is. Right. And that's it. Look, um, fuck Grandpa Joe. Fred is Fred. <laughs> Fred is Fred. <laughs> Just Fred. <laughs> um, and, and she says, <laughs> I love this too. Even if I waited yeah. till we were old and told you then, you'd be bound to look back over the years and be hurt. And I don't want you to be hurt. Yeah. So she does love him too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, again, I think that's a, a line with a lot of wisdom. Yeah. If I say I had this, if, even when we're 60, then you go like, well, wait, you th rethink everything if you find that piece of information out. We're a happily married couple and must never forget that. This is my home. You are my husband. And my children are upstairs in bed. I'm a happily married woman. Or rather, I was until a few weeks ago. And then she says, Fred, I've been so foolish. I've fallen in love. I'm an ordinary woman, and I didn't think such violent things could happen. Violent. Imagine the description of love as violent. I, I, you know, it's funny you say that. I would imagine you describing love that way sometimes. Violent? No. No? No, because violent implies a physical altercation in my mind. Right. I understand. So I don't see love that way. That's, that's why it struck me that line, the idea yeah. that it's violent, you know. But maybe it's violent because it's threatening to destroy her marriage. So it's like a hammer or a something, some device, some wrecking ball into the marriage. So that, that love can be violent. Yeah. Well, and that changes who she changes, who she is mm. fundamentally. Sure. Um, and, and two things about this. Again, this is all voiceover. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is all looking at her face. And this is very difficult acting. And, and one of the things you have to do is you have to get the timing right. And maybe this is why Noel Coward was sending in his 30 seconds, 24 seconds things. Right. Because you've got to know how long is the push in because Celia Johnson has to know what she's thinking at that moment right. because her facial expression and watch it throughout the film, her facial expression will change mm -hmm. as the new thought 
comes along and her f- face performance in addition to her voice performance is just really great yeah and now we're gonna do it's a full citizen kane and i don't know if david lean saw this and knew he was copying citizen kane or he came up with this on his own but we're in this over the shoulder looking at the room as she's describing where her affair began yeah and all she remains there and all the other light fades out and then the new location fades in, and then she fades away, which is exactly Jed Leland looking at the breakfast table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way you do this, by the way, is that you, you normally you do a dissolve. Uh, this time you would do it chemically, but but you do it by fading out one image and fading in another. Yeah. But in this case, you want part of the room to fade out first and the other part to fade in se- out second. So you lower the light on the one side of the room. And so that you have it go really dark in one side of the room and keep the other part lit. And then in the other shot that you're fading into, you have it start dark and go really light. Yeah. And you keep the other part dark. And so when they superimpose, those fades happen uh, within the same shot. Mm -hmm. Um, It just takes some planning. Yeah. Um, uh, One other thing I want to say... Way back in one of our earliest episodes, I learned something really interesting from Quentin Tarantino, which is the difference between flashbacks and nonlinear structure. Mm. Quentin Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction is doing nonlinear structure because there's no person remembering what happened. That is a flashback. And that's what she's doing is a flashback. This is flashbacks. Yeah. And we're is Rashomon in- flashbacks? That's all flashbacks, right? No, because oh no, it is. Yeah, of course, Rashomon is. Yeah, yeah, because it's people remembering. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're back in that refreshment room, and she's reading a book and having some tea, and uh, she happens to see a man and didn't quite see his face, and then she saw his face and it was a nice face, and we have Myrtle and Albert. They're talking about cats and. We don't really. Again, I'm not going to tell you all the stuff they talk about. It's perfectly fun. Um, and she gets up. She goes out, and that express train goes by. Again, the express train yeah. is about passion, you know. Yeah. And she gets something in her eye, and she goes back inside, asks for a glass of water. Um, uh, all this was in the play, yeah. and he, Trevor Howard, comes up. By the way, originally someone else was cast. I don't know oh. who, and they fired him. Okay. Um, and he had never starred in a movie. Um, he had played a couple of little parts. Apparently, he had a very big personality on the set. <laughs> Apparently, he was, he's younger than Celia Johnson, much oh. less experienced, a big drinker. Oof. Uh, I can't tell you, like, every interview about him said, well, he drank a lot. <laughs> like, so clearly, if everybody says this, the guy drank. Well, it seems like, and this is the time where, like, a lot of these British, I mean, that's a tradition, the British acting. Oh, yeah. British male actor drinking tradition. Yeah. And he really trusted David Lean. That, that's Good. kind of the big thing. He said, he really went, you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Um, and I love the suggestions of how to get something out of your eye. Try pulling your eyelid down as far as it'll go. And then blowing your nose. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> but uh, Alec, uh, uh, the Trevor Howard character, is a doctor, and he comes up very gently and says, let me look, and, and takes his handkerchief and gets the little thing out. And she says, oh, what a relief. It was agonizing. And she thanks him. And then he says, there's my train. I got to go. Yeah. And she's, and that's it. She sits right. down. Yeah. And again, I am certain you've had this because everyone has, where you have three minutes with a person yeah. and you go, that was interesting. Right. She was some, and, and maybe you looked out the window or, or watched to see which direction they went or, Oh yeah. You know, sure. And, 
And of course, nothing's going to come of it. It's you're never going to see that person again. Right. It's just a moment, you know. I don't have those anymore, but I used to have them a lot in my thirties, twenties, thirties, and four in early forties. Like, I, they, yeah, no, we're trapped. Them. We're we're trapped inside in quarantine at home. I don't know how <laughs> you would have them. <laughs> I would say this. No, since I've met my girlfriend and been with my girl, I just don't have those moments anymore. I just it's weird. Like my energy is different. I don't convey that energy to have that kind of moment anymore. So it's weird. I don't know. I'm just saying. I haven't had them in a couple of years. I also notice uh, uh, since I've gotten older and my testosterone has gone down, (laughs) I'm not kidding. There are certain parts of me, I don't have them as much anymore either. I think it's because my brain's not in that place. I'm not going to say it's my testosterone issue. (laughs) Well, you've always had had a lot more testosterone than me. I mean, the outlaw... Come on. Well, the outlaw has, yes. The outlaw has a lot. (laughs) Um... Yeah. <laughs> I completely forgot the whole incident. It didn't mean anything to me at all. At least I didn't think it did. By the way, this is also an interesting concept, too, in the movie, Steve. Just like Citizen Because, I mean, one of the things that hit me when I was talking about Citizen Kane a few months ago was like, oh, wait. <laughs> we never hear him speak for himself. So the entire no. movie is told through everyone else's point of view but his. So we have no idea if everything they've told him, us about him is actually true. We never get a full concept of who uh, Charles Foster Kane is. And, of course, that's what the reporter says at the end, which to kind of wrap it up. But, like, here in this moment, this is all through her mind. So we oh, don't yeah. know what Trevor Howard was doing. We don't know if, like, it really was, like, her being all, like, oh, and him, you know, which we find, which we see a little bit later. He was a little more of the aggressor of the two. We don't know because it's all through her point of view. This is her story. I had a thought, which I'd never had before, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes, uh, about this. That 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 uh, that's exactly to that point. Mm. Um, and you know, we see her do her errands, and she goes to the library and right. you buy some stuff. And uh, and oh, then by they the brought- way, I should say, sorry, sorry, Steve. Well, sorry to cut you off again. Um, one, this is something British women did back in the uh, 30s as well, the late 30s. This was something that was done. They had one day of shopping, and they would right. go out of town on a train to a town to do shopping. Uh, it's such an unusual thing that this is what. Well, and, and that's what's interesting about the movie. I can't mm. think of a movie up to this point that is so domestic. Yeah, there's just so much. This is the things that people do. Yeah. You know, movies are usually about bigger stuff than going right. to do shoppings and buying birthday presents and things like that. <laughs> um, and then they run into her, and they yeah. have a completely small talky thing. Mm-hmm. But if you look at her face. She is smiling in a way that we have never seen. Yeah. And then she goes back to the to the station and she gets to the train and then she thinks of him. Mm-hmm. And just having the thought. And again, I've had this thought. Oh, this is where I saw that person before. I wonder mm. if I'll see them. We hear this little bit about a birthday present for Fred and it's very expensive. And should I buy it? And then we cut to the next Thursday. We're now in the third week. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, we're in the second week. And she is buying this extravagant birthday present for Fred. And then she heads to a place for lunch and it's crowded and she manages to find a table and in walks Alec and there's nowhere else to sit. And he asks if he can join her, which he does, Mm -hmm. introduces himself. Again, it's small talk about him being a doctor. And this is it's instant connection. Yeah. Yeah. And, And the joy on their faces to just talk to this person and the naturalness and lack of Awkwardness is apparent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And then there's a little joke where they look up and there's like a trio playing of women and they see the cellist and they think she's funny. I don't know why they think she's so funny. Well, you know, (laughs) she's unusual looking. Well, well, and again, this is something that we've all done of Hmm. when you were in that romantic moment of looking out at the world and commenting on it and sharing a private joke. And for them, the private joke is the cellist. Yeah. Uh, again, it's light conversation. We talk a little bit about the hospital. He asks if she comes every Thursday. She says yes. And then she always goes to the pictures. And he says, oh, so am I. Hmm. I thought you had to spend all day at the hospital. Well, between ourselves, I killed two patients by accident this morning. The matron is very displeased with me. I, I simply dare not go back. <laughs> Dr. Humor. It's a little Dr. Humor. <laughs> and he says, would you mind very much if I came to the pictures with you? Right. This Aggressive. is the... Yeah. He's the aggressor. Well, and this is the first time I ever had this thought. And I think yeah. this is not what the movie is, and it's wrong. Right. Right. But I went, man, you could do this where he is playing her. And this is a thing that he does to uh, married women all the time. Could be. You know, um, that he takes advantage of people that he sees are a little bit lonely and flirts with them in order to seduce them and then does it again. Now, that's not this movie. I think no. you, you have to accept in watching this film that this is true love. Right. You know? If you don't, the movie's going to not work. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a darker movie. And they finally go like, yeah, okay, let's go to the movie. And I love, by the way, that they finished lunch and they got a bill that didn't get split into two people. And, and, they, he's, and he says that he wants to pay and she, and she argues. And then she says in voiceover, we have it meticulously. And you see two coins go down and then even to the tip. And you see two more coins go down. And it's cute. Yes. Um, and they give the movie choices and they head to the movie and they're sitting in the balcony and they, it's a ridiculous trailer for something called Flames of Passion <laughs> that's coming, um, which I love that after the Flames of Passion tra- trailer is a is a ad for Baby Stroller. Yeah. Because passion leads to baby stroller, right? Um, but also, it's a nice, it's a nice juxtaposition, a nice two trailers, right? Because the flames of passion are what we're going to get from them. Exactly. The baby stroller is what they both have. would have to sacrifice yeah. to stay in the flames of passion. Yeah. And she says they they ends up that they're in the balcony, which is more expensive. And yeah. she says, "I feel awfully grand perched up here. It was very extravagant of you. It's a famous victory." Do you feel guilty at all? I do. Guilt is obviously going to play a really important mm-hmm. part in this relationship. A little relaxation never did harm to anyone. Why should either of us feel guilty? I don't know. <laughs> How awfully nice you are. And then rising up from below the, the theater comes the organist. Yeah. And it's the cellist and they crack up. <laughs> uh, we head back to the station and she says, just as we reached the gate, he put his hand under my arm. I didn't notice it then, but I remember it now. Hmm. And then they ask about each other's spouses. His wife is small, dark, and rather delicate. She describes her husband as medium height, brown hair, unemotional, and not delicate at all. You said that proudly. Did I? <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. There's so many ways that I felt watching this. I'm like, oh, I'm Fred. <laughs> you think you're Fred? All right. I'm, I have some very Fred-like qualities. Okay. You can ask Karen. There is, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that Fred does. And the description right. of, you know unemotional and not delicate at all that's that's pretty me too um and they go into the refreshment area and they're having again it's small talk about him being a doctor but the connection between them is really strong Hmm. she gets him to talk about the doctor stuff his passion you suddenly look much younger do i almost like a little boy wow so his wife 
small, dark, rather delicate, mm -hmm. doesn't want him to talk about work. Right. He never gets to. And she's willing to let him talk about the thing he's passionate about and connects to him on that passion, even though she doesn't understand what the hell he's talking about, which is all this stuff, by the way, about preventative medicine, which is like really uh, uh, seen in the, the future, you know, yeah. as something that becomes really important. Um, and there's a thing that I find very hard to express, and I'm going to try to say it. The, the voiceover that's throughout the film yeah. is telling you exactly how she feels. This is what I'm thinking at this moment. This scene... There's no voiceover. They're not speaking romantically at all. The, this is show is that the words are not what's happening. What's happening is what's underneath the words. So on the one hand, you have the clearest possible explanation of emotions through the voiceover. And on the other hand, you have these scenes that are filled with emotions, but done in much more in the traditional way. Mm -hmm. And of course, as they're talking, what do we start to hear? But the music. What made you say that? I don't know. Yes, I do. Tell me. No, I couldn't really. You were saying about the coal mines. Every time it's romantic, we get Rachmaninoff. And as it builds in intensity, suddenly there's the bell. Time's up. There's your train. Yes. You mustn't miss it. No. And then he says, shall I see you again? Mm. She says, like, no big deal. Of course. You know, no, no, no. That's, that's not true. what happens. Oh. No, she says, you're going to miss your train. Mm. And then he asks again, you're right, because he, he asks again, and she says, he says, can I see you again? She says, yes, of course. But she's saying, why don't you get Madeline and your kids? You'll come out with the right. families and we'll right. hang out together. Yes. Which is a perfect deflection. And he says, please. What is it? Next Thursday, the same time. Then she gets it. Then she yeah. gets it that he's I putting think she, it on the table. I think she got it before. Well, fair, fair. But he puts it on the table so yeah. that she can't deflect it anymore. She has to actually address it. Yeah, I couldn't possibly. Please. I ask you most humbly. She says no. And he says, all right. And it's goodbye. And it's not going to happen. Yeah. And she reaches out to shake her hands. And then I think that just flies out of her mouth without her volition. I'll be there. Thank you, my dear. I, she, I don't think she planned on saying that. I think everything no. in her brain said, this is it. This is done. And then she just had to say it. Does she say it when they grab hands? Yeah. So maybe that's the electricity. That, yeah. yeah. And, and and the music hits and her face goes from the joy of connection. As, and then he walks out the door and then you watch the realization hit her of what she's done. Right. Right. Because having running into this guy and having lunch with him. Okay. Going to the movie with him, you know, is a little bit towards yeah. the line but yeah. it's okay when he says can i see you again not with the families mm -hmm. and she says i'll be there she has crossed a lot i imagined him getting out of Cherney, letting himself into his house with his latch key his wife would probably be in the hall to meet him small dark and rather delicate i wondered if he'd say i met such a nice woman at the cardoma we had lunch and went to the pictures and then suddenly i knew that he wouldn't and you beyond a shadow of doubt that he wouldn't say a word. And at that moment, the first awful feeling of danger swept over me. Wow. And when we hear that, we have the steam of the train hit, the scream, the screech mm. of the train hits at that moment. And, and again, watch her face. Watch her yeah. face as these lines go by. Her performance is lockstep with what her voiceover is saying. Yeah, yeah. 
And she gets in, and again, I've had this feeling too. He, she gets in the train compartment with a lot of people, and she's like, can everyone see this on my face? Yeah. You know? Um, the, well, and there's a weird thing. I'm sure you've had this too. There's a weird thing of being going through intense emotions in a very public place. Oh, yeah. When nobody knows what the hell you're, what's going on with you. Yeah. And it feels very isolating and very, like, um, cut off from the world. Mm-hmm. By the time she gets home, she's... It's all silly. It's all dumb. I'm not going to do it. We're just let, let it go. And she goes into her house, and what has happened? But her kid has been hit by a car. Mm-hmm. I am telling you, there are circumstances, many times, where I've been going through a thing that was really, really important. Yeah. And I was determined to to with Karen or in some way deal with whatever the thing is. Yeah. And then my kid had a thing, huh. and then I couldn't. And and the only right thing to do, I'll give you an example. Um, Karen and I do some couples therapy, and we had a couples therapy thing, and I had a thing. And I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about this really important thing. Right. And then our kid had an incident at camp right. where we had to pick him up. They kicked him out of camp. And I had nowhere else to go. I had to bring him to the therapy appointment. And so the therapy appointment became about the thing that happened at camp. Right. And that <laughs> yeah. and that was the right thing to do. It was the right thing as a parent. It was the right thing for him. And my thing got stuck down. Right. You know, and that's what's happening to her right now. Yes. Yes. But also, I think it's and I, once again, the film does not comment on it. But these things that happen around it imply that it's doomed to fail. The idea that the um, fact that your child was hit by a car on the day that this moment happens where you are, you agree to essentially walk down the path or take a step towards the path of cheating on your husband, your son gets hit by a car, right? These are, these are the little mini signs that I think the film does uh, to kind of let you know in a subconscious way that this is going to end in a tragic way. And I don't mean death or anything, but just tragic. Well, and that's how she feels. She feels, you know, like guilty, you know, yeah. be, and thinks they're, she knows they're not connected, but thinks they are connected. Yeah. And by the way, just for those of you who haven't seen it, the kid's fine. He's yeah, going right. to be fine. Um, and uh, it's later on, they're at the fire and talking about things and they're, and they're just joking about kids' futures. And I'm not going to tell you all the stuff they're talking about, but it's yeah. cute and it's funny. And, and then there's this moment where she just decides to tell him. I had lunch with a strange man today and he took me to the movies. And Fred says, Good for you. He, she says he's a doctor, and Fred says, a very noble profession. <laughs> <laughs> and her, again, her performance is so layered because you see her put on the face of, yeah. I'm just telling you about a casual thing, it's no big deal. And you see underneath the stress of, why am I doing this? I shouldn't do this. I have to do this. How is he going to react? And then he reacts in the strangest way. Yeah. And I, and I love this. I thought perhaps we might ask him to dinner one night. By all means. Who? <laughs> yeah, right. Which means he hasn't been listening at all. He's no. just been placating her while he plays the the uh, the crossword puzzle. He has been half or quarter listening. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> He's heard the words enough to respond to them. Right. Must it be dinner? Well, you're never at home for lunch. Exactly. <laughs> Again, this is a moment where I'm Fred. <laughs> and what does she do? She cracks up. Oh, Fred. 
This is a scene where we have dialogue going on that has two entirely different meanings. Because she says, I'm an absolute idiot worrying about things that don't exist. Right. And what she's talking about is this potential affair. It's, it's nothing. It's all she does is have lunch with this guy. It's n- nothing has happened. But what he is hearing is that she was worrying about her son getting hit by the car. Mm-hmm. And so they're having parallel conversations that have total double meanings. And then it's the next Thursday, and she has a plan. She's just going to show up out of politeness and say, hey, we can't do this. And he doesn't show. Right. He doesn't show. And she sees the same cellist at the lunch place, but it's not funny. She walks by the hospital. Nope. Went to see a movie. Didn't like it. Then she ends up back at the train station. Again, the conductor and and Myrtle and Albert are having their thing, which... By the way, this might be my favorite British line of all time of this particular culture. Yeah, look at me, Banbury's all over the floor. (laughs) It's just so like of a particular era. And then what do we hear? A bell. And we know that she's thinking about him and she walks out and she's like, oh, he didn't come. Right. Like, I was going to let him down, but in fact, he backed out. And maybe that's a good thing, you know? Like, oh, it's it's over. I don't have to worry about this anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then on, on the platform, there he is. Running up, and the music hits, and they are far away, and we cannot hear what they're talking about. Then he, you know, he gets in his train. I'm so glad I had a chance to explain. I didn't think I'd see you again. I'm upset. I'll be quickly, quickly. Which I love. Uh, because we, he didn't explain to us. Right. You know, but we know he explained to her and the joy on her face. And he says, next Thursday. Yes, next Thursday. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thursday. Goodbye. All the resolve, all the decision of like, this was silly. This was dumb. It's not important. <laughs> oh, he didn't come. Good. That's good. He didn't come. And it, instantly next Thursday. Yes. Next yeah. Thursday. Yep. And then the smile on her face just drops. Yeah. And now it's the next Thursday, and they're laughing to Donald Duck in the movie theater. <laughs> By the way, both of these lines are great, and so I'm going to read them, although I'll probably cut to them saying them. The stars can change in their courses. The universe go up in flames and the world crash around us, but there'll always be Donald Duck. Oh, I do love him so. His dreadful energy and his blind, frustrated raging. <laughs> Those are wonderfully British good descriptions of Donald Duck. <laughs> It's a big picture now. Here we go. No more laughter. Prepare for tears. It's right about this movie. And they, the movie was bad, so they leave and they end up at the Botanical Gardens. And then he decides they wants to get, you know, get a boat. And it's mm-hmm. not boat season, but they manage to get a boat and they're out rowing the boat. And she and I love this, too, as they're, as they're rowing the boat. Who is she talking to? Because who is this whole voiceover monologue to? Oh, we had such fun, Fred. I felt gay and happy and sort of released. That's what's so shameful about it all. That's what would hurt you so much if you knew. That I could feel as intensely as that, away from you, with a stranger. Happy and sort of released. I know exactly what that feeling is. Mm. You know, and it, it doesn't matter what you're released from. Maybe it's you didn't have to go into work that day or you didn't. There was a time I'd been dealing with a lot of family stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, relatives were in town and there was lots of family events. And then I had to go shopping and I got in my car to go run a couple of errands and I was alone and I felt gay and happy and sort of released. <laughs> I just like, yes, 
I'm just all I get to listen to my audio book and I'm podcast and I'm a driver and we go to the grocery store and I was so happy to just not have to deal with people for an hour and uh, then they crash into the chain because he's not a very good rower right and and he goes okay I'm gonna put it's so dumb what he does he's he's holding onto this thing and pushing the boat away and then he's just hovering over the water and gets ends up in the water yeah um and they laugh. And we end up at like the boatman's house and they're having tea and it's all very quiet and there's looks. And then he says, you know, it's happened, don't you? And she says, yes, yes, I do. And he says it. I've fallen in love with you. And she says, yes, I know. Mm -hmm. It's not a happy moment. No, of course not. Because of the implication, you know, Um, and once again, the, the movie theater foreshadows what's coming. The joy is the Daffy Duck, the jo- or, uh, Donald Duck. The joy is that uh, it's almost childlike, right? The infancy of a relationship is childlike and the joy and the wonder and you're in that honeymoon phase. But then he, sa- he says it as a kind of a, a prescient thing. And he says, now come the tears, big picture. Now come the tears. Big picture, meaning everything that's involved in this relationship yep. uh, and everything that will fall apart if we continue in this relationship. And so... When they're having that moment, uh, in the it just harkens back to the movie theater. Well, and I think too, I think that's a hundred percent correct. And I think yeah. also that the reason it's not a happy moment is because they love their spouses. Yes, absolutely. Yes, is that if they and this is why there's no bad people in this movie. Mm-hmm. Is that it's not that they have people they hate. It, first of all, it's not that their spouses are bad people, and second of all, it's not that they're bad people. Right. They're all good people. And so they, the knowledge of I've fallen in love with you is hand in hand with, I'm going to cause pain somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere there's going to be pain. Please tell me honestly if what I believe is true. What do you believe? That it's the same with you. Sounds so silly. Why? I know you so little. It is true though, isn't it? Yes, it's true. And she is fighting it. We must be sensible. Please help me to be sensible. We mustn't behave like this. We must forget that we've said what we've said. And he says, not yet. I, what I think is interesting with, and again, he is definitely more aggressive through the whole thing. Right, through her point of view. Yeah. He knows it's doomed just as much as she does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wants to hold on to the moment. Let's just hold on to it. But he seems less emotionally affected by the loss of it than she does. But then again, we're not in his head. Right, but he's also proper British, right? Yeah. So he's not going to show that emotion or start bawling or start feeling like desperate. It's even when she said initially, like to meet the next Thursday, and she finally says no, and he gets it. He just says, "All right." There's not a kind of like, "Please, you don't understand." But then when you know, like this situation, he's like saying to her, "Like, not yet. Like, let's let's enjoy this a little bit more." Um, will hit that line. So he's very aware of what's going to happen. So I think your point to, you could absolutely rewatch this film and see uh, Terrence Howard's character as a little bit selfish through the movie because he's the the aggressor. He doesn't let it go. He's the one that takes her to the movies. He's the one that says, not yet. Um, He's the one that didn't show up until the last possible moment. In the, in the meeting when they were supposed to go after he said to her, like, you know, please, please meet me next Thursday. He shows up right at the last minute before they jump on a train. Um, and that, so in that way, was he meeting another woman at that time? I don't, another one that he's got something with? I don't know. But you can absolutely look at this 
in a whole nother light if you were to rewatch this movie and kind of try to create a, a different backstory for him. I, I, I think so. It's so interesting because like <laughs> the thing I say about that is that you totally can, mm-hmm. but you shouldn't. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> the movie the, the movie works the way it works, and it and it works as Steve, a true love movie. Steve getting precious about a film. Oh shit! Well, okay, well, no, of course you can interpret it however you want. But it's so, what's so interesting is like it, it's uh, you know it's like the chef tells you you should eat this food in this order, <laughs> and you go screw you, chef. I'm gonna eat it in whatever order I want. <laughs> you, know? you know what? I'm watching the prequels, then the original trilogy. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> um, and, and, and one of the things that they do to show that this is true love is that he tells her her thoughts. Yeah. How often did you decide that you were never going to see me again? Several times a day. So did I. I love you. He's telling her, look, I'm right with you. I, I've had all the same regrets, all the same guilt, all the same thoughts, all the same stuff that you're having. I'm being more aggressive about pursuing what I'm pursuing. Right, right. And then, man, the romance of... I love your wide eyes, the way you smile, and your shyness, and the way you laugh at my jokes. Please don't. I love you. It's no use pretending it hasn't happened, because it has. Yes, it has. I don't want to pretend anything either to you or to anyone else. But from now on, I shall have to. That's what's wrong, don't you see? That's what spoils everything. That's why we must stop here and now talking like this. We're neither of us free to love each other. There's too much in the way. And then she cries. Yeah. Again, because again, it's the effort not to hurt Fred and the kids. Mm-hmm. And he puts his hand, his hand on her head as she kind of bends over and he says, there's no time at all. Train bell. And we're back at the train and uh, at the train station and they're in sort of the tunnel. He leans in for a kiss and she says no. And he says, I love you so. And then they do kiss. And then we're back with Fred and the music. Hi, Laura. And that Rachmaninoff has gotten loud. Yeah. You're painfully loud uh, in terms of the mix. And so and it's both because the radio is playing too loud in the house, but it's also because the danger of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Their romance is represented by the music and now it's too loud. And so Fred asks to turn it down and, and he, she says, sure, no problem. And she doesn't say sure, no problem. She says some wonderful British way of saying that. Um, <laughs> and then she says, he says, you look tar- tired. And she says, don't worry. I'm perfectly happy. And it were true. Not, I suppose that anybody's ever perfectly happy, really. And then what I liked that she says, and this is a very mature, thought but just to be ordinarily contented to be at peace that's not perfectly happy right right you know that is the staid consistent contented life that she had with fred before she met alec right not perfectly happy not filled with wild throes of romance mm-hmm. but contented yeah um and she says, it was only a little a while ago, but it seems an eternity that the, since the train went out of the station, I was happy there. <laughs> that's the, and that's the Adam and Eve situation of it, isn't it? Like, I didn't know I wasn't happy until you showed me how happy I could be. That's the thing, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's an Adam and Eve moment. I didn't know I was naked until I bit the apple. Um, and I think a lot of people have that experience like, oh my, because it takes another person kind of stick because you're so close to the situation, you can't see it. So it takes another person kind of walking into your life. And like you said, Steve, maybe having that, uh, 
fantasy or pursuing it that wakes you up to um, the fact that you were unhappy in the situation. And sometimes, and I've heard this, I've heard this from people, like sometimes the mini affair, uh, as long as it's never found out, uh, lets the recharges to the relationship and and helps you reappreciate the partner you were with. Right. And of course, other times it leads to terrible things, but like there are the moments where this kind of stuff happens on both sides, men and women, where there's that mini affair and it kind of, you know, wakes you up and go, yeah. Like uh, someone wise once said, uh, your partner's never going to be the A to Z. Literally was about to say the A to Z. So clearly we're on the same page in this. So um, I know it's come up before. The A to Z theory is that you're not going to get everything for your partner. You might get A to T, but there's going to be some things that are missing and there are going to be some irritating things your partner does that really bug you. And that's life. This movie is a perfect example. Yes, it is. I think, I think Fred's a great guy. I think she gets lots of great things from Fred. And the Mm -hmm. thing about the A to Z theory is let's say you're missing W. Right. You know, that's that's someone who wants to watch movies with you or someone who likes to go dancing or someone who loves, you know, horror novels or whatever. Right. And uh, and then you meet someone who's all about the W. Yeah. And then you have the feeling of being gay and happy and sort of released. You know, everything is right with this person. And of course. Because I, you know, because I am not a believer in true love and perfect romance, that if Alec and uh, Laura did get together, eventually things would not be so romantic. Yeah, right. You know, they're going to find the parts of each other that they don't like at some point. They're just not having them now. But right now she is walking on air. She goes into the train. She doesn't even pretend to read. And then as the camera pushes in on her face, we have just the full fantasy. And we have, again, this is very technical, Mm -hmm. is superimposed on her face. And through the window, we see all the romantic. And it is just classic schoolgirl romantic fantasies. Yeah. Which is what she calls them. And we see them in Paris and in Venice and on a cruise and on the beach and everything is wonderful romantic. And then uh, we go from the tropical beach and she, into the real world and she says, Then the palm trees changed into those pollarded willows by the canal just before the level crossing. And all the silly dreams disappeared. And I got out at Ketchworth and walked home as usual, quite soberly and without wings. Without any wings at all. And we're back at the house. And she and I love, too, because she's still talking to Fred in her mind. You see, you didn't know that that was the first time in our life together that I'd ever lied to you. It started then. The shame of the whole thing. And in comes a smiling Fred and asks about lunch and the pictures. And did you go by yourself? And she said, oh, yes, no, not exactly. And again, it's great acting because lying is always yeah. an interesting thing to do on film because you have to decide how good a liar are you yeah. and how much do you want to let the audience in. And what she does is it is a genuinely good lie. Yeah. And we can see the stuff underneath while she does this lie. Right. And the lie is that she met this friend and they ran into each other and had lunch and, you know, had a nice time. And she went to the movie. She didn't go to the movie. And then he leaves her. And you see her face just fall as he walks out and she grabs the phone, dials the phone, makes a call to the woman that she just lied about Yep, and says, oh, I did the most, made the most appalling domestic lie. And she says that she was really going to buy the present for Fred, which we saw her buy. Mm -hmm. And can you just say that we had lunch together? She goes, oh, sure. Of course. And And she she says, I'll do the same for you down the road sometime. Yeah. 
And then she says, hey, let's get together. How about next Thursday? Oh, I can't Thursday. Friday. <laughs> and and I, I've had this moment, too. That week was misery. I went through it in a sort of trance. How odd of you not to have noticed that you were living with a stranger in the house. I've had this, you know, where I was going through a thing and Karen didn't know. I hadn't told her yet. And going like, it's a weird thing because there's a weird sort of pride in Man, I'm holding all this together. Nobody yeah. knows. Right. And a weird like, how can nobody know? <laughs> how can you not see that, that what's happening to me at this moment? <laughs> right. It's Thursday. They meet. He takes her to a very fancy restaurant. They have champagne. They laugh. They go back out into the lobby. He says, oh, I got a surprise for you. He walks away. And who walks out of the fancy restaurant but the woman she just called to lie for her and her yeah. friend? Yeah. This is horrible. So it was you after all. Hermione said it was. How are but you? Know how short-sighted I am. I peered and peered and still couldn't be sure. I never saw you at all. How awful of me. I expect it was the champagne. And again, this is smart line. So it's a good thing to put the most incriminating thing out first. And then she says, I never have it at lunch, but Alec insisted. And they go, Alec who? And she comes up with a lie. Alec Harvey, of course. Surely you remember the Harveys. I've known them for years. You've met him at the this thing or the that thing. She's like, no, I don't think I remember him. Um, and they say, he looks very charming. And the other woman says, yes, he seems very attentive. <laughs> very attentive. Yeah. And then up comes Alec. And they go, oh, you remember Mrs. Norton? He's like, I don't I don't know you. No, I don't. Um, and Alec what? doesn't play along with the lie. It's no, he doesn't play. Well, and, it, and it's just like, come on, you're not going to. We, we've yeah. never really met. And there's some awkward small talk. And they say, okay, goodbye. And the last thing they say is, goodbye, my dear. I do so envy you, your champagne. Because they know. I mean, right. And, and this is going to be a scene that juxtaposes later, which we'll get to, when his friend comes back too early. Exactly. This idea that both people have friends who understand the feelings and are willing to look the other way or um, cover up for them. So, yeah. I shivered, and Alec put his arm around me. Cold? No, not really. Happy? No, not really. So even though we're in the midst of romance, this is not a happy day. No, of course. And he says, I know exactly what you're going to say. Again, it's the, we are in the same place. That the furtiveness and lying outweigh the happiness we might have together. Isn't that it? Something like that. Here's the thing that I, I, I hadn't thought about in the context of this movie until this time. Okay. Is that Noel Coward was a gay man. Yes. And uh, obviously basically closeted because it was illegal in yeah. England at the time. And that line, it's not, it's not worth it. The furtiveness and lying outweighs the happiness. Like there's a way to think of this movie as an affair between two men. Yeah, sure. You know, like, and, and I think that would be an interesting film. It's like mm -hmm. a, someone who's married to, you know, two men. They both have wives. Yeah. They're both married. And then they have this affair or almost have this affair. I think it's called Grace and Frankie. I think it's called Grace oh. and Frankie on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. fair. Yeah. Sheen and Waterston. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the other thing that I hadn't thought about, and this came up, I think, in one of the commentaries of the film or something, mm -hmm. is I didn't think about how close this is. Oscar Wilde, the previous great British witty writer to Noel Coward, he was arrested and imprisoned for yeah. sodomy in 1890. Yeah. That's around when Noel Coward was born. This is 
Noel Coward was writing plays in 1920. Yeah. You know, like that's that's you know, you think today's 2020. How far away is 1990? Right. You know, it's not that far. Because yeah. I always think of I always think of Noel Coward and Oscar Wilde totally different eras, mm-hmm. but they're pretty close to each other. Yeah. We're back at the train station, and we're and he says, "I'm going to miss my train." And it's all silhouetted. We don't see his face. I'm going back. I'm going to miss my train. Back where? To Stephen's flat. Oh, Eric. Now, this is as clear as can be. Yeah. He's saying, come back with me to this flat, and we will consummate this affair. Once again, the aggressor in the whole situation. 100%. In her eyes, in her point of view. Well, I I, I think there's, objectively, like, he's the guy saying, come back to the flat. Well, um, I don't know if he said that. That's the thing. It's all through her point of view. What oh, sure. He said sure. If this say. is real. Right. And, and they kiss. And what happens at the moment they kiss? The express train goes by. The express train is about passion and emotion. Mm-hmm. The bells of the trains to go home are about the real world. Yeah. Um, and she says, I got to go home and runs away. And inside, we're back in the refreshment place where some soldiers come in and harass Myrtle and Albert stands yeah. up for them. You know, jerk off soldiers. Yeah. Total jerks. And yeah. again, I'm not going to spend that much time on it. because. But I do think it's so interesting that you're in this intense emotional moment and life is going on around you and it doesn't yeah. know what you're going through. And then Laura hears the announcement of her train and hears her own voice in her head saying, I really must go home. And hears his voice saying, I'm going back to the flat. And it repeats <laughs> Again, I've had this, not yeah. this exact thing, but things like this in my mind. And she goes and she gets on the train. And just as the train is about to start to move, she stands up and says, I've forgotten something. And she gets out of the moving train. <laughs> and interestingly enough, this section has no voiceover. Right. Yeah. Right. We, we don't, because we know her thoughts, frankly. She gets to the building, she rings the bell, and he answers, surprised. And she goes in. And they talk about the rain. And she says, I'm so frightened. Yeah. And he says, oh, maybe the fire will warm you up. As if it was shivers from the rain and the cold that's making her uncomfortable. And they kiss. And then she says, I can't. You know I can't. And he says, and again, this is the guy and this is being the aggressor. Just stay a little while. Yeah. You remember the scene? I don't know why it reminded me of this moment. But uh, Rocky Balboa and Tyler Shire in the love scene where he says, just come up for a little while. Well, just stay a little while. It's just like, I can't, I can't. Um, you know, you know, and some people ding the movie for that, you know, which, cause of course we're all so hypersensitive nowadays, but some people dig that ding the Rocky movie for the, Oh, he like tricked her upstairs and then he trapped her in the apartment. I'm like, have any of you ever fucking like, it just frustrates me sometimes. Like you, you, some, some relationships are born out of that. Some relationships are born out of that moment of like, one person wanting to kind of seduce the other person to come upstairs and the other person being timid and not sure and not shy um, and coming up there. And then their walls come down because they've been afraid to care for somebody or afraid to connect with somebody. And someone has to come along who kind of knocks those walls down. And so that does happen. It doesn't mean that every single time it's correct the way to do it, but this is a movie and it's a love story. And so people try to ding a movie like that. It drives me up a fucking wall, man. And so I think this kind of thing is, uh, like you said, Steve, there's a way to look at this movie and there's a sweetness here and a love here, but there's also um, an aggressive approach by Terrence Howard to make this happen, you know, and Trevor, not aggressive, uh, Trevor, oh, sorry, Trevor Howard. Howard, sorry, not Terrence, right? That's a different, Very different. approach, uh, but Trevor Howard and not necessarily an aggressive approach, but maybe aggressive for that time, 
you know, and, and insisting in it because he's in that flat and he's certainly going to do something in that flat of course. Uh, when she shows up. But the thing I wanted to say earlier, and I will I, I, like, let me just, yeah, I just, sure, sure, say, sure, sure, just we, we talked about we talked about the Rocky thing. We talked about Rocky. I 100 percent agree with you. Yeah. Like there have been other times, you know, obviously Blade Runners come up a bunch and other things mm. is that and, and this is the thing. And it's true of this movie is that Rocky is right. Right. You know, and Tally Shire really does want to be there. Right. That's what she really wants. Right. And he and he sees it. And will I say to my son, like, hey, kid, this is what you should do. Yeah. Get her up in your apartment and get yeah. in her way when she wants. No, of course not. I don't think that behavior is correct. But I do think it's correct for them in that moment in that relationship. Exactly. It, and these characters are in the same place, too. Yeah, right. You know, and he would ne- if she says, I got to go. Yeah. She he'd let her go. Right. Of course. You know. Yeah. Uh, but by the same token, I also say this, it always takes two to tango. And I never, ever buy when people say when they cheat, like, oh, it just happened. Oh, it came out of the blue or it just happened. Bullshit. Her walking to that flat, she can choose not to walk to that flat. And I think in every affair, both sides make a decision and a choice. And there is no, there's up for, it's up for other people to forgive, but you can never say, Oh, it just it just surprised me. It was out of the blue. I had no idea. Bull, you always make a decision uh, to cheat. And that's the thing at the end of the day. And it's your decision if you, if you want to feel poorly or, or, or uh, understanding about them. And in this situation, um, you know, the film doesn't judge, as we've said over and over again. So it allows us to feel whatever we would like to feel as we watch this uh, go forward. Well, what I think is there's no question when she gets off that train, yeah. she knows that sex is a possibility. I mean, she's not a yeah, fool. Sure, absolutely. When he, absolutely. When he says, "I'm going back," I'm not. I'm going to miss my train and go back to the mm-hmm. flat. And she says, "No." Well, the reason she says no is because she's saying, "No, we can't actually consummate this affair." Right. And when she gets off the train, she is now. She and again, and everybody has the right to back out at the last possible moment if they go. But she is thinking. Yeah, of course, her brain is going. I am going to have an affair with him. No, no, I can't. I, yes, I will. No, I won't. That's what's happening with her right now. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and I believe that if Stephen, the guy who owns the flat, doesn't show up in the next minute, I think they do have an affair. Yeah, that's a good point. I think sure. they do. That's I, why I she came back. That's why. Yeah. And yes, there's going to be some resistance. And yes, they're going to feel guilty and they're going to. But I think they're I think it's going to happen. Yeah. But it doesn't happen because they hear the door and he rushes her off the back stairs and she runs away. And now we're left, and this, in fact, breaks all the rules of the movie because now we're going to have the only scene in the film where she isn't there because everything else is her flashback, and she was not here for the scene. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So how can she even tell us this scene? It breaks the rules. Oh, it does break the rules. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I I mean, did you bump on it? I bet you didn't. No. I I never did. I I mean, I've seen this movie 10, 15 times. I, Mm -hmm. I, I thought about it this time. But but I did, you know, because I think the movie totally works. And yeah. this scene with this guy, the owner of the flat, is kind of amazing. Yeah. The dialogue is dialogue that only Noel Coward could write. It is so British, articulate, urbane dialogue. And it's so rough because he comes in and finds, you know, he says, oh, I had a cold, so I came back early. And then he sees the scarf that she left yeah. behind. Well, no, my dear Alec. You have hidden depths, which I never even suspected. Okay, Stephen. No, for heaven's sake, to... Alec. No explanations or apologies. I am the one who should apologize for returning so inopportunely. And then he said, and I love this. He comes up with Alec's lie for him. Yeah. 
It's quite obvious to me that you are interviewing a patient privately. Women are frequently rather neurotic creatures, and the hospital atmosphere is upsetting to them. <laughs> and what's funny is you're kind of going, oh, is this dude cool with this? Is your first sort of thought. But then the sort of venom inside, it's like, because what he's really saying is, dude, you brought a chick back to my apartment? Yeah, like, what yeah. What the hell? You're going to have sex with some woman in my bed? That's like, that's, true. That is not cool. But he's so British <laughs> that he expresses it in this totally weird way. I'm surprised at this farcical streak in your nature, Alec. Such carryings on are quite unnecessary. After all, we've been friends for years, and I am the most broad-minded of men. And what you, and then you cut to Alec, and you realize, like, Alec is embarrassed and humiliated and mm -hmm. also kind of irritated at the way this guy's poking at him. You're perfectly right. Explanations are unnecessary, particularly between old friends. I must go now. Well. I'll collect my hat and coat. Goodbye. Perhaps you let me have my latchkey back. I only have two, and I'm so afraid of losing them. You'll know how absent-minded I am. And, and now you suddenly go like, oh, I think this friendship's over. Yeah. Because they're British, so nobody expresses any emotions. You're very angry, aren't you? No, Alec. Not angry. Just disappointed. Oof. <laughs> it's like, Almost worse. Oh, it's terrible. And between this and the, the gossipy woman seeing them in the restaurant... Mm. This is like this, dude. This can't work. This is not going to work. Eventually, real life starts to creep in and starts to make it smaller and smaller. Yeah. Well, and what's so interesting is that you know this is people talk about this as one of the most romantic films of all time. Yeah. Well, nothing is consummated. Like they True. kiss like three or four times. Yeah. Like they never. We never get to the to the joy of romance. Right. Right. It's all almost there. I, to me, it's sort of the. It's it's kind of like the iceberg principle, which is that it's all the things we don't see. Yeah. It's all the things that don't happen that make it so uh, profound and stick yeah. with you. The Rachmaninoff is blasting. She's running through the night in the rain. I felt so utterly humiliated and defeated and so dreadfully, dreadfully ashamed. And she calls home and says, I'm not going to be home and comes up with another lie about a sick friend or a friend with a sick, sick mother. It's awfully easy to lie when you know that you're trusted implicitly. So very easy and so very degrading. Yeah. It's truth. It speaks about you, not about them. Yeah. Yep. And she's still not ready to go back to the station, so she ends up at some war memorial, and she's smoking. And then a policeman sees her and is suspicious. I walked away, trying to look casual, knowing that he was watching me. I felt like a criminal. Gets to the refreshment room, orders a brandy, tries to write a note, can't figure out to what to write, drops her head in the, her hands, and in comes Alec. Darling, I've been looking for you everywhere. Please go away. Please I've watched don't every send me. Train. Please go away. I can't leave you like this. You must. It'll be better, really. It will. You're being dreadfully cruel. It was just an accident that he came back early. He doesn't know who you are. He never even saw you. I suppose he laughed, didn't he? I suppose you spoke of me together as men of the world. He didn't speak of you. Well, and this is this thing of like, you know, yeah. she doesn't know whether or not Alec has had affairs before. Right, right, right. But she defaults to this thing. And look, men of the world, it's a very advanced film. Yeah. You know, this conversation, this dialogue, like it's, it, you know, harkens back to what Madeline Kahn says in Young Frankenstein when she's like, you know, six or eight quick ones and you're off with the boys. <laughs> and keep your mouth shut. But it's that kind of thing. No one's connected to Young Frankenstein to Brief Encounter. You are the first. <laughs> Maybe. But, you know, it's that idea of like women know that men talk. Men trade stories. Men, this is why other women and mothers tell their daughters, don't sleep around. Guys talk. Don't get that reputation. Guys talk. You know, it's never the other way around. 
because it's a patriarchal society. It's never the other way around, you know? So yeah, in this situation, even more so at this time in Britain. You know? Yeah. And he says, we love each other. That's all that matters. And she says, and this is the movie right here. We know we really love each other. That's true. That's all that really it matters. It isn't all that really matters. Other things matter too. Self-respect matters and decency. I can't go on any longer. And this is why it's a doomed romance. And she knows it. And he does too. And, and this is why I, I go, I think you have to reject the Alec as a player scenario. Right, 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 right. Because he says, I can't look at you now because I know something. I know that this is the beginning of the end. Not the end of my loving you, but the end of our being together. So he's saying, I'm not gonna, we're not going to sleep together. It's not going to happen. We are, this is going to end, and it's going to be terrible for us, and we both know that's the right thing. Yeah, but he still goes like, but we can't break it off right now. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta ease into it. Not yeah. quite yet. <laughs> and then he explains that he's gonna leave. He's he's le- gonna leave the country. Do you want me to stay? Do you want me to turn down the offer? Oh, don't be foolish, Ellie. I'll do whatever you say. I love her response. That's unkind of you, my darling. And it's true. It's like, don't put it on me, man. Yeah. Like it's not like. Yes, I can't be the person that makes that decision. Right. And they basically agree that we are going to see each other one more time on the next Thursday. Forgive me. Forgive you for what? For everything. For meeting you in the first place. For taking the piece of grit out of your eye. For loving you. For bringing you so much misery. (laughs) And her response, I'll forgive you if you'll forgive me. And what's so beautiful, she says that the train starts to move away and she's in the train in these great compartments we don't have anymore, where she's leaning out the window, which she can't do anymore. And the pace of that train pulling away is so perfect. Yeah. And I wonder if the train is not moving and the camera is on a dolly moving backwards. Oh, yeah. Because it's just, I don't know that you can move a train that smoothly at that perfect pace. Yeah. Um, And just we hear the last thing we hear as she goes inside is Thursday. Today was our last day together, our very last together in all our lives. I met him outside the hospital, as I'd promised, at 12.30. At 12.30 this morning. That was only this morning. And they met at 12.30, and he hired a car, and they went to the same bridge, and the hours went very quickly, and now we're at the station. As we walked through the station, I remember thinking, this is the last time with Alec. I shall see all this again, but without Alec. And this is the moment. So Karen, Karen and I had seen this many times a long time ago. and But Karen hadn't seen it in a long time. And this moment as they're walking to the station is where she remembered what was about to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, because, and I think for, even if you're seeing it for the first time, you as an audience at some point are going to put together that we're actually returning to the opening of the movie. Right, right. You know, right. Um, because they arrive at the cafe and they're sitting down and... And they're kind of talking, not being able to talk a lot. I wish I could think of something to say. It doesn't matter not saying anything, I mean. I'll miss my train and wait to see you in No, please don't. I'll come over with you to your platform, I'd rather. This is the moment of the beginning of the movie. I love you with all my heart and soul. I want to die. If only I could die. I love his response. If you die, you'd forget me, and I want to be remembered. She says, me too. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Wait, who offers to write? Is it her or him? He does. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So she's the, always got to be the one that's like... She's the stronger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
And he says, he looks at his watch and he says, we've still got a few minutes. Yeah. And just as that few minutes comes out of his mouth, we hear Laura. Laura, what a lovely surprise. Yeah. Chatty and Kathy. And she walks in. And it is so like, because now you've been through all this. And, right. you're, and they're building up to their final goodbye, their last moment that they ever get to see each other. They ever get to talk each other, ever get to say that they love each other. And that moment is destroyed. Well, and it's a microcosm of the entire movie, that moment. Exactly. Right? right? Because it's like the real world has been creeping in and getting in the way of them consummating the love or fully embracing the love and letting go of everything. Like real life always creeps in at the most inopportune moment to keep it from being fully uh, realized and for us being fully swept up in it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. And I think that's so important uh, and kind of brilliant about the film as well, you know, because she comes in and just demolishes it. And she's a jackhammer just demolishing this thing. You know? Well, and I think when you're young, you can believe that you're going to have these mo- a lot of these moments that are these amazing things are going to happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not that in life we don't have some of those moments. We do. Sure, sure. But most of the time as you get older, you have to learn to accept the fact that that's not going to happen. Most of life is just life. Right. You know, and, and we can hope to be ordinarily contented as she talks about her marriage. Right. But, you know, there's I, there's so many times where I've had the it's it, it, I, this is the thought that has occurred to me as I've grown older of just like, it's not your night. Like, not your night, kid. It's not, not your night. night. You know, like like I don't know if you, you you've been at a party and you really wanted to cut loose and have a great time. And then you're kind of with the wrong group of people and you're yeah. not having a good and it's like, you know, what, it's not your night. Like yeah. go home, go to sleep. It's nothing. Nothing's gonna happen here. It's not your night, and and this is sure. certainly not their night. Yeah. Um. And and of course we hear the same dialogue going on, and the camera is just pushing in on her, and the light fades out behind her, and we hear just a little bit of a very noticeable line, which is no sugar. It's in the spoon. Oh, Alec behaved so beautifully, with such perfect politeness. No one could have guessed what he was really feeling. That is the most British line. <laughs> And, and then what happens? The bell. Has your train? Yes, I know. Yeah. Once again. Back to reality. The train now arriving at platform four is the 540 for Shirley, Lee Green, and the Langley. Do you want to know who the announcer is for all these oh. trains? Uh, no. Noel, it's Noel Coward. Oh, nice. Okay. He, she looks at him. He can barely look at her. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what we saw before. And we see the exact same shot of his hand on her shoulder. Mm -hmm. And then this shot is so great because we're framed on the door. Yeah. She's looking at the door and she sits right into frame. Not, she doesn't even get the last look of him walking away from her. Right. She has to look at this woman. Yeah. Is that the train? Oh, can you tell me? Is that the Ketchworth train? No, it's the express. And again, this very strange line. Of course, that doesn't stop, does it? Right. And now, and because I don't think we thought about this. No. We haven't no. thought about this. You know, it happened at the beginning of the movie and she disappeared for some reason. We don't know what it is. And the camera is pushing in on her. There's no voiceover. And it is, as it pushes in, it starts to tilt into a Dutch angle. And then we hear the slow building screech of the train. And it is a really intense, dissonant moment. I think in this moment, we're going, oh, no. Yeah. You understand. And it's interesting that a movie that has been so much tell with the voiceover 
is also really good at show. Yeah. Like, like we know what she's thinking and she runs out intending to kill herself, you know, and this is, you know, Anna Karenina throwing herself under yeah. the train. This is the most romantic notion. And she gets hit with a blast of air. And of course the whole thing started with her getting hit with a blast of air and some grit in her eye right. from the express train. Right. And she stops and the shot is still in a Dutch angle. Close up of her face with her hair blowing is amazing. Yeah. And slowly but surely the camera goes back from tilted to straight. She's leveling out. Yeah. She's leveling out. She's getting back under some level of control. Yeah. This is a master filmmaker at the very beginning to me. You could see the moves. And what she says is so amazing. She says, I should like to be able to say that it was the thought of you and the children that prevented me, but it wasn't. I had no thoughts at all. Only an overwhelming desire not to feel anything ever again. And then we're back home. And we go back to her face, sitting in the chair. And Fred is staring at her. And this look of just profound compassion comes over his face. And he crosses to her. And I love the staging of this because he kneels down by her chair. He doesn't sit in front of her. He kneels below her. Yep. Whatever your dream was, it wasn't a very happy one, was it? And she shakes her head. No. And he says, because this is what you do when you're a husband. Is there anything I can do to help? And I love that she puts her hand on his hand. Yeah. Because she knows who Fred is and she knows that he loves her. And she and that means something to her. It's really important. And then he says, and this line is an amazing line. You've been a long way away. Thank you for coming back to me. Yeah, right. Oh, it's such a great line, man. It's a great moment. And she embraces it. I, I was funny. I was watching uh, the second time I was watching it through with a commentary track. And, you know, I, mm. I, commentary tracks are always mixed bags. This wasn't a terribly good one. It was okay. Um, and I always have the subtitles on so I can kind of be paying attention to the movie while I'm listening to the commentary track. Yeah. And when it got to this moment, man, I didn't hear anything the commentary guy said for a while. And I, and I just burst into tears again, wow. just watching this because thank you for coming back to me. Mm-hmm. Because we don't know what Fred knows. Right. But Fred not only knows something was going on, you know, he's more mm-hmm. perceptive than maybe we might have given him credit to. Uh, and maybe more than she might have given him credit to. Yeah. Before. Yeah. But he's also okay with it. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, he, he loves her. Right. Uh, it's a very almost feminist movie, you yeah. know? Like, it's, it, it's very much like, yes, of course, you're a person. And you're having your own experience. And I'm sharing this life with you. Yeah, it's it's a, a really profound moment. Yeah, I agree. And the last thing we see is the image of a train station, and that is the end of the film. Yeah. Um, we have talked uh, 30 or 40% longer than this movie is. <laughs> it's a very short film that we talked a long it time is. on. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's why um, you go to the cinephiles, people. Uh, the first screening they had, uh, a whole bunch of people laughed at the most sentimental moments. Oof. And David Lean was crushed. I bet. He felt that maybe he got the whole mood lo- uh, wrong. Uh, the critics really liked it. It ha- hit just at the end of the, the war. It's in, in a strange way, in addition to being a movie about affairs and about brief encounters, it's also a movie about duty mm. and doing what is right, right and doing what you are supposed to do and maintaining the social structures, even though it hurts you. And I think it fits very well into the, that final, you know, weeks of World War II. 
it was a huge hit for Rachmaninoff, as I said. It was nominated for Best Director, Actress, Screenplay. It won none of them. Um, one of the interesting things, I, 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 I don't care that much about Rotten Tomatoes and things like that, mm-hmm. but I'm always interested to see the difference between what the critics think and what the audiences think. Right. And this is 91% for the critics and 91% for the audiences. Ah, there you go. It's right even. Um, here's a quote that I like. This, this quote is from uh, Catherine Altman, who's Robert Altman's wife. Mm-hmm. She says, one day years ago, just after the war, uh, Robert had nothing to do, and he went to a theater in the middle of the afternoon to see a movie. Not a Hollywood movie, a British movie. He said the main character was not glamorous, not a babe, and he, at first he wondered why he was even watching it. But 20 minutes later, he was in tears and had fallen in love with her, and it made him feel that it wasn't just a movie. And that film, of course, is Brief Encounter. Wow. Wow. So... I'm curious. We've had a long conversation. Yeah. How are you feeling about Brief Encounter? Well, I mean, if I'm doing my final thoughts, I will say, you know, one of the joys of cinephiles is you and I talking about movies. And most of the time we're talking about movies that we both feel the same way about. And uh, we're just enjoying going through the beats and the scenes and the moments and, you know, laughing and uh, getting emotional or enjoying or even feeling the tragedy of, of these films um as they go along um and but this is the every once in a while and every once in a very very uh long while there is a movie that uh both of us uh come at it from different points of view from different yeah. opinions about the movie uh and this is one of those moments or this is one of those episodes where i come out better from having had the conversation with you about the movie appreciating the movie respecting the movie and understanding the movie in a better way, in a more profound way, that now I feel like this is an actually fantastic film uh, and a film that I would actually enjoy watching all over again after our discussion. Uh, and hopefully some of you all who've maybe only given it one chance or have never found an interest in seeing it, maybe you listen, because I know a lot of you listening to us will listen to us even though you haven't seen the movie and then go watch the movie with our perspectives in your head so maybe some of you will take a chance on this movie who maybe were on my side uh, and now want to give it a chance and watch it with our perspectives in your head as well. So that's what I would say. This is actually a very well done film, uh, incredibly well acted, uh, very poignant uh, and uh, tragic uh, and emotional, a surprisingly emotional film uh, with way more depth than you would think. Um, and some, certainly a film that should be appreciated um, as we go forward. And now I understand why it's in the top 10 uh, almost and uh, uh, and was number two uh, in the British, uh, uh, in the eyes of the British people for quite some time of British films. So that's my final thoughts. So one quick thing, if you do decide to watch it again, I definitely watch it with Lindley. Yeah. 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 This is, this is a good, this is a good movie to watch uh, with a, with a, with your significant other. Yeah. And um, occasionally say to her, don't you dare do this. Don't yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> this is a cautionary tale. Um, <laughs> So so here's the thing I find fascinating about this movie is this man, movie manages to perform what I think is almost a magic act, okay. which is in one sense, it is a movie clearly about true love. Yes. And it is a movie that is definitely romantic. And most of the time that you see a movie that is super romantic and about p- true love, it's not necessarily going to be the most realistic Right. You know, it's because because in to go off into the fantasy world, you know, the the princess and the prince and the, you know, the romantic, we're going to kind of leave behind sort of the realism of everyday life. And this movie is firmly grounded in realism. 
It's yeah. firmly grounded in real life. And in fact, it's the conflict between the real, ordinary stuff that you have to do, the kids and the home and living your life and the promises you've made and what life really is that creates the tension in the film. It's, yeah. it, it's those things coming together, true love, real romance that cannot possibly exist because of our duty in our real world. Yeah. And the choices, and I, I think in a lot of ways this is very influential on me, I hadn't thought about it before. I don't mm. like bad guys. Like I, if you look at all the screenplays I've written, uh, I, have, I really don't write bad guys. I like people that you might think are doing things that you don't like, but the more you look at them or see them from their perspective, then they're, yeah. they're, all the decisions they're making make sense. Right. This is a movie without bad guys. This is a movie with good people who want to do the right thing that are yeah. caught up in something. And, the, and, and again, I think Celia Johnson's performance is amazing. Trevor Howard is, is great. And Fred is the rock. Like, yeah. like um, if you don't have Fred as a husband that you genuinely like, no might be kind of staid and boring on some levels, but yeah. like really loves his wife. I don't think this movie works as well. And I think the craftsmanship of David Lean, the genius of him, the brilliance of Noel Coward's dialogue, and in particular, Celia Johnson's performance, both with the voiceover and watching her face, is what makes this a really strong movie for me. Yeah, agreed. So that's what we think of Brief Encounter. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Just do a search for The Cinephiles on Facebook to join our Facebook page. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, um, where you might even be able to pick our next movie. We also <laughs> record now. We're doing uh, cinephile shorts all the time. We're having a lot of fun talking about topics of your choosing. Um, you can uh, buy or stream Brief Encounter, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, on cinephiles.net. You can follow Cinephiles on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, on Instagram at the Cinephiles Podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm on Twitter as SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris One. John, how about you? Uh, you can always follow me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, you can do so at youtube.com slash John Roca Says. Uh, some new co-hosts are coming on to my programs to kind of expand the channel. Two female co-hosts are coming on, Alex Shashak and uh, Sabrina uh, Martinez. She's coming, uh, Sabrina Ramirez rather, coming on to my channel as well to kind of, you know, give it a, give it a little bit of a ladies vibe as well. Expand the approach. Uh, and one last thing, the Patreon, please, uh, my Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash John Roca. Uh, we just announced four new shows for the Patreon. And one of them is called Criterion Corner, where I spend about 20 minutes talking about one of my favorite Criterion films and maybe encouraging you to buy it. So a lot of stuff going on there in my world. Uh, so come, come be a part of it, please. Be a part of all of that and make sure to come back next week where we'll have another great film on the cinephiles. <laughs>